Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. Will he take the tax off all so Canadians can keep the heat on? What we see from the Conservatives yet again is misinformation. More pushback on carbon pricing from the opposition and from provinces. You'll hear from Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, plus analysis from columnist Graham Thompson. And ahead of new immigration target numbers, the government promising a better system for newcomers, including housing and health care. Minister Mark Miller tells us why. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, in for Michael Serapio. The Prime Minister says there will be no other carve-outs to federal carbon pricing. Justin Trudeau says the pause on home heating oil is about phasing out a more expensive, more polluting heat source. But opposition parties continue calling the move a divisive flip-flop. Why don't we let Canadians decide? Why doesn't the Prime Minister pause the tax across the country until Canadians go to the polls so we can have a carbon tax election and Canadians can choose his plan to quadruple the tax or my plan to axe the tax. After uh, three failed elections in a row by the Conservatives, they still want to fight another election on denying climate change, on denying the costs of climate change. After the summer we've had, uh, they continue to say no plan against climate change is what's good for Canadians, good for our economy, good for businesses. They are wrong, and Canadians are going to show them that once again. And with me now is Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Premier, welcome back to Primetime Politics. My pleasure. So today we're hearing from federal ministers that these carbon pricing changes uh, are a reasonable and flexible answer to some specific circumstances for home heating oil and for Atlantic Canadians as well. We have the Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson saying there are no more carve-outs coming. What's your reaction to that? Well, they're really twisting themselves into a pretzel to try to justify something that's unjustifiable. If they're concerned about carbon pricing and carbon emissions, then they shouldn't be giving a reprieve off a much higher emitting type of fuel, which is the heating oil. They should be applying this across the board. If they are concerned about affordability, affordability remains a problem as we get into the winter season in every single province, regardless of what fuel type is used. And so I, I don't buy their uh, their arguments. I think it's, it's, it's just nakedly political that they are trying to win back support in Atlantic Canada. It's inappropriate. They've already essentially said, if uh, any province wants a similar reprieve, they've got to vote for more liberal ministers. It's outrageous. And they really need to apply a system of fairness across the country. I do also want to ask you something we're hearing today from the federal NDP here in Ottawa with uh, leader Jagmeet Singh saying, let's take GST off home heating. That would be a fairer approach across Canada. What do you think of that as an alternative? There needs to be some reprieve across the board, but, th- but this is the whole point. The federal government asserted that they had the right to regulate on carbon pricing because they were going to set a floor price that applied to everyone across the country equally. And they violated that foundational principle that they argued before the Supreme Court. So what we would expect is some consistency, not political game playing. So yes, we all need a reprieve. I can tell you in Saskatchewan, 
there, uh, there was a, a combination of both the uh, NDP and the Saskatchewan party agreed that they needed to have fairness. Uh, Saskatchewan is going one step further. And they said they're not going to be collecting the tax anymore starting in January. In uh, our province, our NDP has also said the same thing. And so the federal government has got this wrong. So they need to correct it. The, and the way, best way to correct it is to take the carbon tax completely off home heating. We are a cold winter country. It goes down to minus 30 regularly. They never should have applied it to home heating in the first place. And now's the chance for them to correct it, not just for one region and one type of oil, but for everyone. Okay, let me dig into your response then from your provincial government. As you mentioned, you and the NDP have a motion talking about inequity across Canada and urging an end to the federal consumer carbon tax. Uh, beyond a motion in the legislature, what more are you prepared to do along the lines of Saskatchewan? Well, I'm hoping that there is a political answer to this. Saskatchewan and every other province is in a unique position. We have a, a competitive free enterprise market for our energy system. And so I don't have the same flexibility that somebody who has a Crown Corporation has. So in Saskatchewan, even Scott Moe recognizes that it probably doesn't conform to the letter of the law, but if in the interest of fairness, he's got to make sure he takes care of his people. I, I can't ask our private generators and our private operators to break the law, which is why we can't have this patchwork. We can't have this kind of lawlessness where one uh, one province gets a reprieve or one region gets a reprieve from the federal government, another province goes its own way, all because the federal government says that they've asserted the right to be able to set a, a, a carbon price across the country. They've got to set an equal, fair carbon price across the country. They're not doing that, and, and it's up to them to come up with a political solution. We'll be pressing them for that. Okay, now you did say yesterday uh, that your government was looking for legal advice on this federal decision. So tell me more about what avenues are you looking at? Is this another court reference on carbon pricing that we could see coming? Well, I had been told when I first got elected that the court normally does not like to hear um, a, a review of a case that they've just rendered a decision on as they did in 2021. But I have to tell you that if the federal government is going to undermine its own arguments about why it is they needed to set a federal carbon floor price, then it seems to me that that allows us to go back to court and say, this isn't what they argued. This isn't the reason why they said that they should have this power so that they could play favorites and be able to set differential prices for differential products across the country. That's outrageous. That's not how our confederation is supposed to work. They're being very divisive, very damaging. And if they're not going to apply it equally, then I, I'm going to be seeking some legal advice about whether or not we can get the court to reconsider that case. If their argument is now that the, the carbon pricing is so onerous that it's putting people at risk as we get into winter, that is an argument that applies equally in this province. And so if it cannot be justified in Atlanta, Canada, I assure you it cannot be justified in Alberta either. I want to ask you on the subject of the Supreme Court, because I know you've been talking a lot about that recent opinion uh, on Bill C-69 on the Impact Assessment Act. Now, of course, that opinion deals specifically uh, with elements of that act, designated projects uh, versus projects under uh, federal purview. Do you think that decision on the Constitution and the division of powers uh, could potentially apply here? I'm, I'm willing to test it. I mean, I, I think, again, as long as the federal government is applying their, their policies equally, I think they're on solid ground. For instance, they've always had a federal fuel tax, but they don't charge the federal fuel tax differently in different provinces the way they are now contemplating doing with the carbon tax. It's ludicrous. And so if they're going to be doing that kind of action, I, I think that that undermines their argument about why this needs to be set federally. If their argument is, well, we have to take into account regional differences. Well, that doesn't that just it, it under, uh, underscore why it is these decisions should be left to the provinces if we have to have regional nuance? 
and regional policies that make sense based on the geographic realities that are happening in each region, then that's by definition a provincial matter that should be left in our hands. And so I, I'm prepared to, to see if we can get some legal analysis. We've begun that process. And if, um, if they don't come up with a political so solution, we'll see if we can go forward and get a new reference. All right, we have a few moments left, and I do want to shift to your government's speech from the throne delivered yesterday. Of course, pensions have been a big issue in your province, but no mention of that in the speech. Why not mention uh, a potential Alberta pension plan yesterday as your government delivered its agenda? Well, as I've always said, we needed to issue the report so that people could see what we saw about what the Pension Act says about what we're entitled to if we do end up setting up our own pension plan. But I've also equally said that any decision on setting up a pension plan would go to a referendum. And we're not sure uh, as of yet, because we're only partway through our consultation, whether Albertans have an appetite for a referendum. So we're going to allow that consultation to, to continue on. And we'll, uh, we'll make a decision once we have a, a better idea uh, about whether or not our, our people even want to have a vote on it. So is the fact that there is opposition inside your province to potentially leaving the Canada Pension Plan giving you pause now? Well, I guess what I would say is that the, the federal government hasn't come back. They, they said they don't like our calculation. They don't uh, agree with it, but they haven't offered a counter. And what I've heard through our consultations is that people want to know exactly what the asset transfer will be. So our next step is going to be to get that answer from the federal government. Then, and if they won't give it to us from the CPPIB Investment Board, and if they won't give it to us, then we'll have to go to court. Because I, I think that that's what people want to understand is what the asset transfer would look like. Because then we'll have a better idea of what the reduction in, in premiums will be or what the increase in benefits will be. So we're going to commence that work and I hope that the federal government gives us their response. Okay, now right at the start of your speech yesterday, uh, your government promises to use your Sovereignty Act several times in the coming months if the federal government continues down its current path on emissions and energy. So can you be a bit more specific? What are the red lines for you that would lead to this act being used in the upcoming months? I've been, I've been very specific all the way back to the leadership race when I first proposed the Sovereignty Act. If they uh, put in an arbitrary cap on oil and natural gas emissions as they've threatened to, 42% reduction by 2030, that's a red line. If they bring through an arbitrary cap on fertilizer emissions, which they have threatened to, 30% reduction by 2030, that's a hard line. If they bring through a hard cap on emissions from methane, as they've threatened to do, uh, uh, that would be a hard line. And if they proceed with uh, unrealistic expectations or unrealistic targets to uh, have a net zero power grid by 2035, we know we can't do that. That would be a hard line. So those would be the four circumstances. And we're trying to work with them. I, uh, I, I told the prime minister from the first moment that I spoke with him that I was aligned with trying with getting to carbon neutrality by 2050. I told him that we were going to do an emissions reduction plan, which we did. We released it in April. I asked him if he would uh, uh, work with us to set up a table so that we can have our two governments work together on figuring out how we can align our policies. We've had, they've met several times. And so now it's uh, with the Supreme Court at our back saying, yes, the constitution matters. Yes, these are things that are in provincial jurisdiction. I think that uh, they should be working more collaboratively with us to align at 2050. They, they cannot take unilateral action here. And those would be the circumstances. Okay, very quickly, I want to ask you one last question uh, about your legislative agenda. Your first bill promises a referendum before any rise in personal or business taxes. 
Does that open up more potential for you to have to perhaps de-index tax rates from inflation if there's fiscal crunch? How are you going to handle uh, your provincial finances if there are economic issues and you are looking for revenue? Well, here's the, the promise that we have made is that people know that the rates that they have right now will never be higher. We're going to make sure that if rates were ever increased, it would be put to the people. If basic personal income uh, tax exemptions for both personal and spousal and spousal equivalent um, were ever lowered so people would be paying more, that would also have to go to a referendum. So we want to give certainty to people that the environment that they see themselves today will never be worse than it is right now. And and that uh, if any future government wants to make a change, they'd have to put it to a referendum in the same way that we've had legislation around sales tax. If any government wants to impose a sales tax, they have to ask the people first. Okay. Premier Daniel Smith, thanks again for your time. You bet. My pleasure. Well, tomorrow you can expect updated target numbers for immigration to Canada. Today, the government is promising change to the immigration system as a whole, including more focus on housing and health care and better alignment with the labour market. And Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller is with me now. Uh, Minister, welcome. You say... Uh, your plan. Uh, you need to take into account uh, the services that newcomers and Canadians need, and that includes housing. So on that front, what will be new in your approach? I think what we announced today is the fruit of some work that has been uh, that has been done over the last uh, well, since February, where we've engaged the Prime Minister Sean Fraser, rightfully engaged a wide segment of society to see what we are doing uh, and how, how, how we are properly reflecting you know, these historical levels into what Canadians are needing, which is obviously uh, you know, immigration, which has been the wide consensus in Canada for a long time, but how we're, how we're reflecting um, increased concern with planning, um, with the way the department is working, and sort of a strategic look at what we can do better as we go into the next years with, I would say, winds that have turned a bit uh, against uh, the consensus that we have seen largely in Canada about immigration. And I'd hasten to say this is not about xenophobia, uh, although we sometimes hear some of that, but it is about Canadians telling us to get our acts together, uh, to be more planned, be more coordinated. So what I take home for that, in, in my department foremost, is to make sure that we continue to aggress uh, aggressively fight the delays we've seen in processing, that we've seen coming out of COVID in particular, that we're modernizing a system that has not necessarily been ready for the 21st century. And then we're doing something that we haven't really done all that well, which is coordinating with our partners in the provinces to, m to properly match uh, supply and demand uh, and in the context of of uh, a foreign credential recognition this that's entirely in the jurisdiction of provinces of planning in and around health and housing these are all issues that are complex but will but will require us to play a better coordinating role and investment role as we as we welcome newcomers at, at the levels that we have set for ourselves Okay, I want to stay on, on housing and health because we are, of course, awaiting uh, your new immigration target numbers. Now, you have been signaling uh, that we're not likely to see a reduction in targets, but how do you maintain immigration levels at the same time tackling those issues like housing and wait lists for doctors? 
Yeah, and I think you know, looking at both sides of the equation, both uh, supply and demand is very important. You know, uh, we have high expectations as to the quality of our healthcare system, for example. Um, but what we don't often realize is that healthcare system is heavily populated, whether it's nurses or pharmacists and even doctors now, by uh, by people who are new arrivals into Canada or um, or, or, or recent arrivals. And I think uh, you know, focusing only on the pressure that newcomers will will exert on the system, while it's something we can't discount, uh, is sort of only one part of the equation. So too on housing. Uh, housing is, you know, planning, preparing, making sure that we're investing where we haven't invested before is key. But only looking at that from one side of the equation, I think, is, uh, is faulty reasoning and unfair to the reality that we will need, for example, in the construction industry, 100,000 more workers to fulfill our ambitious plan by 2030. Those people aren't in Canada. Uh, a good chunk can be. Um, but we'll need to have strategic immigration that recognizes that skill set as we see sort of the, the aging out of, um, of those particular trades. And I think industries, uh, unions are telling us loud and clear that we need to act now. So um, that needs to be digested, understood better by, by Canadians, and that, and that discussion needs to happen. At the same time, you know, I think there's been a bit of a false debate about, you know, were we to reduce by 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, what impact would that have? There isn't a single person that can credibly tell you uh, what that exactly is, uh, but it doesn't mean that we are, are blind to that reality and the concerns that, that these volumes present. And so that's, that's sort of the sober look I have it. The strategic immigration review that we launched today is a helpful tool, um, but I think as a government we have to be more attentive as to what these volumes uh, imply for Canada and be sensitive to be able to react a little more nimbly than we have in the past. Okay, so you've mentioned uh, construction workers just there as, as one category uh, of worker in Canada's labor market. Now, part of what you're announcing today is talking about better aligning the immigration system with job needs in Canada's labor market. So can you be a little more specific for us? What will that look like in practice going forward? Sure, a couple things, Andrew, and it's things that we're working on, um, you know, whether that's increasing the points we attribute to skilled trades as we welcome Canadians, being a little, you know, we've often seen the demand in the economy and we've matched it abroad with hope. So these people have all these skills, they come here and realize they're barred from the industry because they don't have the qualifications. That's not the right way to do things. Um, so that is a larger discussion on, on, on recognition of foreign trade credentials in, in the construction area. There's some provinces that are doing some good work regardless of their political uh, leanings, uh, but also a number, a, you know, a suite of measures that we could put into place and that we haven't, I haven't fully uh, examined with my department yet, but I'm willing to share with you whether it's regularizing people that have fallen out of status here that have those skilled trade set and are here, uh, bringing them back into status so that they can, uh, they, they can work in, in, you know, above board or in, in an area where you need people. Um, actually uh, allowing people to transition from, from uh, temporary foreign worker to permanent residency so you don't stuck, stick people and have them stuck in uh, this addiction to temporary foreign workers that we have that is having some perverse consequences on the economy in terms of wage depression, uh, in terms sometimes of exploitation, which isn't the rule but does exist. Uh, so addressing a number of things at once that make it a little more seamless for people to come in. My colleague Sean Fraser announced uh, an enhanced pathway for people to come in from, from the trades. We're, st we're, we're still looking at the results of what that will be, but I think we have to increase the efforts in making that sure that, that those specialized skills that we're seeing and hearing from unions and, 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 um, and employers is properly reflected in the policy instruments that we have. And that will be a constant, uh, that will be a constant challenge, but something I think we need to be nimble in adapting to and adjusting our public policies rather quickly to welcome people in a faster fashion. All right. Mark Miller, Canada's Minister of Immigration, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you, Andrew.
All right, now let's take a look at today's top stories. Finance Minister Christia Freeland and her provincial and territorial counterparts will meet Friday about Alberta's proposal to pull out of the Canada Pension Plan. For six decades, the CPP has been the bedrock of a secure and dignified retirement for Canadians, very much including the people of Alberta. Ontario's Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey called for an urgent meeting of ministers last week to discuss the issue. Freeland says they will discuss what she calls flaws underlying Alberta's proposed exit formula. CPP covers workers from all provinces except Quebec, which has its own plan. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith claims the province would have a right to more than half of CPP assets. Provinces have the right to opt out of the plan, but the portion of assets they are due have to be negotiated. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh wants the government to drop the GST on home heating this winter. What we're proposing is, what we got to do is give all Canadians a relief. And so that's what we're saying, let's take the GST off of home heating. That's going to provide relief to all Canadians. That's the right thing to do. We've, we've made a decision as a nation that we take GST off of essentials. Home heating in a country as cold as ours isn't essential. Singh also wants a windfall tax on oil and gas companies making what he calls record profits. He says the tax could pay for better heating options that help fight climate change. Canada's economy is slowing according to Statistics Canada. Its latest report shows the gross domestic product was flat in August. While mining and oil and gas industries grew, Agriculture, manufacturing, retail and food services all shrunk. StatCan pointing to high inflation and interest rate spikes, and there is likely to be little change in the GDP for September. That would mean Canada's economy has not expanded since May, putting it in what experts call a technical recession. And the Prime Minister has appointed five new senators and one is no stranger to Parliament Hill. It's Roger Kuzner. The former Nova Scotia Liberal MP was first elected in 2000 and served 19 years. He was a parliamentary secretary to former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and Kuzner most recently served as Consul General of Canada in Boston from 2020 to 2023. The four other senators appointed today, nurse Joan Kingston, lawyer John McNair, business leader Krista Ross, and lawyer Rajan O'Coin. There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution. This is designed to phase out home heating oil the way we made a decision to phase out coal. That's the Prime Minister's message today as several provinces demand more exemptions to the federal price on carbon not just home heating oil. You heard Alberta's Premier earlier on carbon pricing and on her government's speech from the throne. Let's get some analysis on both of those stories from Alberta columnist Graham Thompson. Graham, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this provincial pushback we're seeing on federal changes to carbon pricing. Scott Moe in Saskatchewan has so far taken the most drastic step uh, with what he's telling Sask Energy to do about uh, withholding or not collecting uh, carbon taxes on natural gas bills. But of course, we're seeing opposition from other premiers, including where you are in Edmonton with Danielle Smith. So what do you make of what we're seeing uh, right now between the federal government and these premiers? Yeah, this is a gift 
political gift to Danielle Smith. Like she's all about attacking the federal government. We saw her get really aggressive last year. You know, she won the UCP leadership race, the, uh, the governing party in Alberta, the United Conservative Party. She won the leadership race on this very much this get at Ottawa all the time, you know, taking this sort of uh, page from Jason Kenney's playbook, the fight back strategy, fight, fight, fight with the Alberta, with the Alberta government against Ottawa. It gets kind of tiresome after a while thinking it's a one-trick pony. But the thing is, you know, part of the, the, the fight is against the federal carbon tax, the price on carbon. And here, all of a sudden, you have the federal government stomping on its own carbon tax, of course, by giving this sort of tax holiday to Atlantic Canada when it comes to uh, the uh, tax on uh, oil for heating homes. Now you've got Smith saying, well, look, uh, we you know, burn fossil fuels in Alberta, natural gas. Why don't we get a break? And it's not just her saying this now. You've got even the NDP, the opposition in Alberta saying, yeah, hey, Trudeau, you just can't carve out these things for certain areas of the country. We deserve this kind of break, too. So you have um, Trudeau actually having the Alberta NDP and the UCP, uh, Danielle Smith and Rachel Notley, NDP leader, actually on side, actually uh I guess singing from the same uh, page in the choir. So this is remarkable, and this is a real gift to Smith because it's not just her constantly fighting against Ottawa for no real reason. Here's a reason that people can get behind. Even the normal critics of Smith are getting behind her. And we did have uh, Premier Smith uh, telling us earlier she does want a political solution on this, but also hinting at perhaps another legal reference over federal yeah, so carbon yes, pricing. Yes, she's yes, saying she's willing to test it. So we already have this tension between the Trudeau government and the Smith government over energy. Where do you see it going from here? Yeah, I know she's talking now about the Sovereignty Act. And this is, again, this is an issue she brought up last year in the UCP leadership race. She brought in the Sovereignty Act. Uh, the, the roots of the Sovereignty Act, those who actually helped write it, uh, it's all about being unconstitutional and fighting the federal government, ignoring federal laws. Now, Smith is trying to say, well, look, you know, I'll, I'll be more um, me, modest in how she uses the Sovereignty Act, but it does mean using this act to stand up against Ottawa. And this is something that she's saying she's going to do this fall during the session, bring in some motions. We don't know how that's going to look, but the thing is, she's on a roll as well, because you know, a few weeks ago you had the Supreme Court come down and say the Impact Assessment Act, the federal act, is largely unconstitutional because it steps on provincial jurisdiction. And this is something that Smith is taking and running with, saying, hey, listen, if need be, we may be back in court constantly fighting the federal government. Uh, we don't know if she's going to ignore federal laws. That's a problematic issue. And most Albertans, according to the public opinion polls, don't like when premiers step over the line when it comes to fighting Ottawa. But they do like the sense of a premier standing up against Ottawa. And here you have an example where the Supreme Court has supported uh, Alberta's point of view. And now you have the Smith, Smith saying, if I have to, I'll get even tougher. And the Sovereignty Act it seems like it'll be used to get back into court and force the federal government to go into court, maybe never-ending fights with Alberta. And that plays into the wheelhouse of the uh, UCP and particularly Daniel Smith. And she's on a roll right now and becoming even more popular, according to public opinion polls. And the Sovereignty Act was a part of yesterday's speech from the throne uh, in the provincial legislature, but left out of that speech was the word pensions, which of course has been on a lot of people's minds in Alberta and across the country. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, this is really interesting, isn't it? Because she's been on her... Um, pushing the pension plan, this idea that we can withdraw. And of course, Alberta can legally withdraw from the Canada pension plan. But she is saying, according to the report she, um, uh, the government commissioned, saying that we can get 53% of all the assets, uh, $334 billion out of the CPP. Big question mark against this. So even though she's pushing this, and she'll be bringing in an act to, um, to tell Albertans if we do this, it'll go to a referendum first to reassure Albertans who are very nervous about this. But still, she did not mention it in the um, speech from the throne. And this is interesting because I think what's happening is it's still a big question mark. A lot of people are really nervous in Alberta. It's not a popular move, to say the least. Most Albertans are against the idea of our own pension plan. So she's not putting that forward in the speech from the throne, even though they will be bringing in some piece of legislation to help put this before a referendum. But the thing is, other parts of the country are pushing back. Ontario is pushing back. The federal government is pushing back because other provinces are worried about what this could do to the whole uh, the, the CPP across the country, except for Quebec, of course, has, has its own pension plan. But this is very divisive, very controversial, and she simply left it out because it didn't fit into the narrative that she was pushing forward uh, in her throne speech. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Graham Thompson, good to hear from you again. It's been my pleasure. And that is Primetime Politics for Tuesday. I'm Andrew Thompson. Thanks for watching and stay tuned for L'Essentiel avec Esther Bejan. Good night.